Dave Bedini is a Toronto-based musician and author in addition to being a co-founder and songwriter with the Rio Statics. He's written a number of books on music, hockey, and life on the road and has founded the West End Phoenix. We'll talk about that in just a little while. A monthly newspaper for his own West End neighborhood in Toronto. His new book is Midnight Light, A Personal Journey to the North. Dave, welcome. Hey, good to be here, Richard. So the first thing that I ever wrote for the Globe and Mail was a review of On a Cold Road. Mm. And when was that? What what year would that have been? I think I still owe you a bottle of whiskey for that (laughs) review. (laughs) That was 98, actually. That was 98? Yeah. And was that the first book? Yeah, totally. 13 books ago, man. I know. That's a lot of books in a a fairly short period of time. It is. People people actually said to me when this one came out, people were like, you're just, you're really pumping them out. Well, the truth of the matter, actually, it's been five years since my last one. But I know I do have the, I've created the illusion of being very productive. (laughs) But if they'll publish them, I'll keep writing them. Yeah, yeah. And I, On a Cold Road was uh, based in and around the, the, your, your time of touring across the country. And I just want to touch on that just a little bit. So 1987, you, you go out on the road for the first time from coast to coast pretty much and probably everywhere in between. Mm-hmm. And, you know, two and a half months on the road that time. And you say you had never really been anywhere before that, uh, but it really gave you a, a sense of the scope of the country and, and made you kind of fall in love with the country in a different way. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was a fantastic journey, you know, like just getting out of Ontario, like everybody who just gets out of Ontario by car heading West should get like a, like a, a citation. <laughs> as soon as you cross the Manitoba border, they should give you, you know, scroll. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, it's tough, man. It's tough driving. This and we were, we were there were five of us in a, yeah. my dad's Delta eighty eight tugging a U haul too. So, <laughs> but we certainly. I mean, really, honestly, now that we're talking about really just surviving Thunder Bay is is an achievement because <laughs> they can chew you up and spit you out with the best of them. But uh, so it's it's a it's a wild journey, you know, just in terms of navigating the geography. Yeah. Say nothing of the, you know, at least at that level, kind of the war zone bars and the and and also the. I must say, even though a lot of the clubs were really tough, there were some that were beautiful and really friendly and, and embraced us. Winnipeg, Royal Albert Hotel. You know, the first time we stayed at the Royal Albert Hotel, the first night we stayed there, and it was kind of a, it was a bit of a rummy, rummy hotel with a live bar in the basement. It was first morning we woke up, 7 o'clock in the morning, to these boots stampeding down the hallway and shouting, and we realized that the guy who had been living in the room next to ours had died. That oh. night, yeah. So they were the ambulance. So that was an awesome, uh, awesomely a rude awakening for a young rock band on the road. Yeah, because you're a kid at this point, right? Oh you're... man, we're like yeah, in our in our uh, late teens, early twenties, and uh, so that that happened. And then you know, I remember getting to the. Na- I mean, I could go on. We get in, I remember getting to the National Hotel uh, in Calgary, and uh, somebody, um, uh, a woman, coming up to our guitar player, one of our guitar players, and saying, "Listen, don't whatever you do." Don't go in the bathroom because <laughs> my boyfriend's in there waiting to kill you. <laughs> so it was like, well, wow, guess we're peeing in the alley tonight. But, you know, uh, when you get into those towns and you're a young band from the South, yeah. young Toronto, you're meat, right, yeah, to, yeah. To, 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 to the Lions. And, but getting to Vancouver, you know, we, we, showed, we finally got there after six weeks of touring. And then Vancouver is beautiful. We had these great shows. Then we had to make our way back and our car broke down and 13 engines rescued us, another van, and we drove back in their van. So eight of us in this van. But but just um, 
just achieving that. Yeah. And getting across the country, you know, with barely our, our skin uh, covering us, we, we felt like we were able to do kind of almost anything after that. Well, and you've crisscrossed the country many, many, many times since then, both as a musician and as a writer. So the new book, Midnight Light, A Personal Journey to the North uh, by Dave Bedini, it's in the, it's in fine and not so fine bookstores totally. right now That's everywhere. Right. Irreputable bookstores everywhere. <laughs> but uh, as a writer, you went to Yellowknife for the first time. You you attended a, a writer's convention up there and you fell in love with it up there. Tell me what it was. I've never been. Tell me what it was that grabbed you. Sure. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was thrilled to get an invite to Yellowknife because after getting the invite, I realized, oh, the Northwest Territories. You know, and I I say in the book too, like I, you know, I, after those early tours across Canada and even going out, uh, going out east and heading up to Iqaluit and uh, Whitehorse, I fancied myself. I'm a man of the nation. Yeah, I've yeah. been everywhere. <laughs> then you get an invite from Yellowknife and you realize, oh, wait, yeah, there's this whole other region, you know, dominating across the middle of north of the map there that I hadn't even been to. So, so I thought, okay, so we went up there and, 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 and well, the Yellowknife Literary Festival on itself is really interesting in that. They, they bring in like three or four writers from, from elsewhere. So I think there was uh, Edmonton, Vancouver, myself, and Robert Sawyer was there. I'm not sure where he lives. But there were four kind of published authors from elsewhere. The rest of the lineup is all locals. Wow. And it's a lot of it is people who um, haven't been published before, who just kind of write in their own time. And it was really, at the end of the day, it was super refreshing um, because you heard stories you'd never heard before. And you certainly, and the stories weren't kind of parceled um, in a way that most literary festivals would parcel. Right, or there's not agents trolling around the cocktail yeah. parties and all that kind of totally. thing. Totally. It's right? like, yeah. a, you know, CMJ music, yeah. uh, a new music right. seminar for music. You used to be like that where you'd walk into a bar and so you'd, somebody you'd never heard before. It's a bit more of an honest impression, I think, a little right. bit. Um, so, But the town itself is really interesting because you've got, I think you divide, divide the town into two groups of people. One is the Dene, um, Dene Nation, uh, and they've been there, families have been there for 10,000 years. And it's a very kind of empowered and Indigenous nation, mm-hmm. um, the territorial government is 100% um, uh, Dene. So, the, so um, in terms of uh, the the destiny uh, and the construction of the place, it's all really in the hands of the indigenous people of the land, which is beautiful and as it should be. Um, and then the other group uh, up there are really itinerants in a lot of way and transients. It's people who have come from other places with with backstory. And a lot of them are kind of running from their lives, a failed marriage, um, getting fired from their job, you know, just seeking some sort of distance from their lives here. So um, so that's a really interesting kind of collision of, of people. People have been there forever and people that are completely new to the town. In fact, um, the, up there, the newspaper, the Yellowknifer that, that I worked for, uh, up until a few years ago, they had a column that was who's coming, who's going. So it was who left town and who just got off the plane. So, you know, because it's this lively kind of carousel yeah, yeah. of people. So um, that's partly what, what drew me to it. The other part was uh, it's one of the most beautiful places. I mean, the downtown core is really hard scrabble and really, really tough, but Great Slave Lake and Old Town and the Woodyard. Um, people live on houseboats and yeah. things still. I mean, it's it, it's this mix Mm-hmm. I, 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 from reading the book, it's this 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 mix of uh, things that feel like they are rooted firmly in the past, and yet sort of are forward looking at the same time. Mm, very true. I that's right. It's a cross between, you know, it's a kind of a cross between eighteen seventy three and two 
2023. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Really, is the whole sense of time and scale is really, really different. You're right, because super progressive. Mm-hmm. There are people living, the people almost living kind of a, a post-apocalyptic <laughs> right. existence yeah, yeah, in yeah, a yeah. When you think about the way they've learned to live on the water, right, and being solar powered and and all that sort of stuff, but at the same time, you'll you'll be standing like a you know um, on a rock. It's very it's the Canadian Shield is landscape say there, staring on a rock, looking into the lake, and it, it feels like uh, it feels like you know thousands of years ago. Yeah. So it's got that be- it's at that beautiful apex, right between who's coming, who's going, <laughs> you know what's there and what's about to come. And that I was charmed by that. Uh, in McLean's, you wrote that finally the North was no longer a concept but a place. And what made that revelation for you? Was it the people, or was it the the, the overwhelming experience of being somewhere that you had never been before? I think uh, you know you travel to see things with your own two eyes. You know, um, yeah, it was just it was largely kind of a map dot, or it was largely. Um, that white band across the top of the country that, you know, your eyes don't almost follow high enough to really get a sense of what they are. But um, so so it was a real unknown. Um, and they always say about the Northwest Territories, it's the one place in Canada that uh, whose name describes where it is rather than what it is. <laughs> and it's in the Northwest. <clears throat> Let's name it that. And in fact, it was named by, you know, a person who'd never been there before, a bureaucrat in Ottawa. And Yellowknife in Northwest Territories were actually, was actually governed by um, Ottawa up until the late 60s. It didn't even have its own, own government. So, um, yeah, and putting, putting uh, you know, faces and putting uh, all of the senses to this place uh, made it come alive for me, for sure. And... You say here that it it was in Yellowknife that I felt most connected to my northernness. And I mean, you're speaking, I guess, in a a broader sense, your northernness as a Canadian, maybe, and then even going further north made you connect with it even more? I mean, I I think we like to think, because, you know, we we see ourselves in relief of the United States Mm -hmm. so often. and we like to think of ourselves as, you know, we have winter in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. it snows. Sure, yeah. you know, in southern... Yeah, I had a sled when I was a kid, whatever. So, yeah. For sure. We like to think of ourselves as hardy yeah. northerners, but really, um, you know, uh, people up north kind of, you know, they they look at us with a bit of a wink mm-hmm. because we really, you know, it really, there is, there is a... There's a, another, it's next level north is really, and even when I was in Yellowknife, I, I said, told somebody I was going to go up to Tuktoyaktuk um, and, and Fort Simpson and they were like, wow, next level north. And I was like, there's another <laughs> level. So um, <clears throat> it keeps going and going and going. And in a weird way, the further north you go, the more fascinating people are. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dave Bedini. The book is called Midnight Light, A Personal Journey to the North. Uh, It's available in stores everywhere right now, online, Amazon.ca, wherever you buy books. Is there an audio book? Will you do it? There is not. I I lost two weeks of my life reading this goddamn book into a microphone, (laughs) so you better buy it. I've never done one of my own oh, books don't. as an audio book. That's what everybody says. Yeah, it's well, I mean, <clears throat> I find at the end of a book, I'm so sick of it anyways, let alone having to read it again. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and also, when we come back, we'll talk the Reostatics have a new record coming out. We have to talk about the West End Phoenix a little bit. Uh, you're a busy guy and lots of projects going on, but we're going to focus on uh, the sort of journalistic points that are in the book because I don't think it's a book of journalism. It's a, it's a personal 
uh, book, but you don't shy away from some of the the tougher uh, uh, aspects of the story, alcoholism, mental illness, sort of some of that sort of stuff. I want to touch on that when we come back, and I'll do that in my conversation with Dave Bedini, the book Midnight Light, A Personal Journey to the North. My guest in studio is Dave Bedini. He's a Toronto-based musician and author, co-founder and songwriter with the Rio Statics, written 13 books on music, hockey, and life on the road. The new one is called Midnight Light, A Personal Journey to the North. It's available right now wherever you buy books. And this book isn't exactly straight journalism. You've written for newspapers, and and I Mm -hmm. want to spend some time focusing on your time at newspapers and and how it's sort of taking you to yet another facet of your life. But you've written for newspapers, but I don't think of you as a journalist. And I'm not so, a journalist. Yeah, it's a different thing, right? You mix totally. you, it, it's it's a, a mix of I don't know, light journalism and memoir smashed together. Right? Journalists work a lot harder than I've ever <laughs> worked in my life, Richard. Let's face it. <laughs> and so, then tell me about exploring some of the more difficult parts of this book. We'll talk about John McFadden in a little while. He becomes a main character in this book. He is one of those itinerant people that you talked about earlier in the interview who ended up in the North because he was running from some bad things that happened. Uh, But and his story is fascinating, but you talk about uh, institutional incarceration, mental illness, alcoholism. Uh, Tell me some of that. We've talked about the beauty of the place. Let's talk about some of the downside of the place. Yeah, there's um, like a lot of places in the north, I suppose, um, limited opportunities um, and a rather static um, uh, labor force. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the town um, economically uh, rests on the fortunes of the mining industry largely. Um, and, you know, whatever government contracts can be kind of, you know, uh, flown up north. Um, and you also have a lot of people uh, coming from the communities seeking opportunity. Um, and there's also a housing crisis there too. Rent is really expensive. Um, it's, it's an expensive town. you got to fly everything in, right? Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, there is, uh, you know, mental health issues. There is and, – and drug and alcohol abuse issues for sure – there's no um, drug or alcohol uh, rehabilitation center in Yellowknife, which is preposterous. Mm-hmm. Um, even in terms of shelters, there are limited amount of beds. So you do have people freezing on the streets. Um, now, the one thing that's interesting, I think, in a way, about where you would find our homeless community here sort of uh, in the shadows of our city a little bit, even though it's obvious to anybody who walks around the streets that in most of our major cities that there, there are issues, they're right in the center of town um, the homeless community almost has taken ownership of the, the the center of town, which is fascinating to me as opposed to kind of, you know, um, pushed into the shadows. And really the truth of the matter is in the north, it's hard to be pushed into the shadows because the land is so open. Right. Um, so for me, I, I found it, I, I made it my duty to kind of really get to know the people who are on the streets. And while there is a lot of abuse um, they're actually quite friendly to me and more than willing to tell me stories about their lives. And so it, in a way, in a way it was easy for me to tell that tale without, yeah, you're always ca- careful when you fl- go through a town about doing a flyby, like yeah, a yeah. reductionist. And it really, in the end of the day, it probably is a reductionist portrait, only a little less so because people were so forthcoming about who they were. Well, and you actually stayed there for some time. It yeah. wasn't like you spent a week and wrote a book about the place. Right. And you mentioned John, you know, um, uh, one of the narratives in the book is, is John, the reporter that I got to know, John McFadden, not to leap ahead, but he, um, he was arrested and 
for obstruction of justice. And, and because he was arrested, I had to go cover his trial. And his, his, I had to make seven trips up there as a result to follow, follow this through to the end. How long does it take to get there? Um, it's not bad. I mean, it's you fly to Edmonton, and then yeah. it's a two-and-a-half-hour flight from Edmonton. So, yeah. I mean, listen, it's Canada. We're used to these flights, right? <laughs> it is totally doable, for sure. So you're in the north. You're working for the Yellow Knifer newspaper. So mm-hmm. you wanted to change. Yeah. You, you were, you're living in Toronto, uh, and you want to kind of shake things up a little bit. The yeah. National Post gig had yeah. come to its natural conclusion. Yes, it did. <laughs> as, as media gigs do, you know. Yeah. And, and you wanted to continue writing for newspapers, and the Yellowknifer happened. Well, it's interesting you say, you know, as media gigs do, and you would be far, far more, um, vet, you know, uh, savvy and you have more experience than me, but I thought media gigs just kept going forever and ever and eternity. <laughs> it's not <laughs> if you get fired, it's when you get well, fired. <laughs> little did I know, um, you know, with the post that uh, things were changing a lot there and um, they were in crisis, I think. Yeah. And it's remarkable to me that they're still around, but they were, they were in cardiac, it was a, kind of a cardiac arrest. Um, and so, yeah, my work get, got winnowed. Um, my word count went down. I was writing less and less and less and less. And eventually I had a falling out with the editor and, and that was the end of that. But I really loved writing for newspapers and I loved, I loved that. And I loved being at the paper too. So, um, but the star of the globe and sun and everything else, they weren't hiring and there was no real place for me. Um, so like a lot of people who end up in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, I, you know, called the paper there and asked if they could find a seat for me. And Bruce Valpy, the managing editor, was like, why would it, why would you want to come here to write yeah. for us? <laughs> like you could go to yeah. somewhere closer to home. Sure. Caledon probably That's has a right. newspaper. Exactly. Yeah. Shelburne. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I, you know, I explained that, um, it, I, I explained that I, I had felt it was my good fortune to sort of discover um, uh the fact that Yellowknife was one of the few capital cities um, that had never really had a book written about it. Right. You know, Elizabeth Hay wrote Late Nights on Air, Late Late Nights on Air, but that's um that's a fiction, mm-hmm. right? And that was a while ago too. So um, it was nice to be able to to stumble on that. And I thought, you know, if you want to get to know a place, uh, you know, you can be a, you can be a police officer, a firefighter, you can you can work on the street, right. or you can be a reporter. Yeah. Right. That's how you get to know a, a place quickly because you're totally at ground level, totally, totally street level. And he said, well, all right, fine. So he helped me actually find, they helped me find a place and set me up. And, uh, you know, walking into that newsroom for the first time, I knew walking in that I was, you know, I was, I had this whole canvas in front of me, yeah. this whole, this whole, you know, this, the, the climate and culture of this workplace would inform the book as well. And you are a Southerner. Yeah. Walking into a place that, that, you know, is a local newspaper, I'm sure. Right. And we've only got about a minute left, but uh, I'm sure that there was this attitude like, what is this guy going to have to add to the conversation? You know, I'll tell you, Richard, though, Yellowknife is the only place in Canada I've ever been in my life where I wasn't looked down or at or profiled because I was from Toronto. People didn't care. Really? It was amazing. It was beautiful, actually. Yep. Yeah, yeah. There was no, nobody ever cast aspersions on, we, on me. I was never, nobody ever assumed... I was possessing the airs of a Southerner. Yeah, yeah. And for that, I was really, really grateful, actually. Did they know who you were through the Rio Statics and that sort of thing? That may help as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. John McFadden said uh, um, when he found out 
that I was coming, he was in disbelief. He was like, why would this guy from the Rio Statics ever want to come up yeah. here? And uh, and he had been a fan of the band and stuff. But, and yeah, no, so that was, in a, it was nice to actually use my kind of cachet for yeah. whatever it is to be able to find a it's place. A nice I think little, it helped. It's a nice little calling card to totally. send ahead. When we come back, we continue the conversation with Dave Bedini about his book, Midnight Light, A Personal Journey to the North. The book is called Midnight Light, A Personal Journey to the North. The author is Dave Bedini. Uh, we'll talk about the book in a little while. We'll talk about a new Rio Statics album. It's the first one since 2006. Yeah, yeah. Something, something like that. Something like sure. that. Yeah, so it's it's been a bit of a gap. We're mm. uh, excited to hear how that's coming along and what's going on and when we can hear it. Uh, tell me about your day-to-day in the North. So you moved to Yellowknife. You're going to work at the, the Yellow Knifer mm-hmm. as a reporter to get to know the people, soak up the, the atmosphere. Tell me a little bit then about what happens day-to-day. Uh, well, the Yellow Knife is interesting in a bunch of ways. One is when it was founded in 1973 by two rogue journalists from the north. Uh, they established two absolutes. One was no wire copy ever. Mm. The other one was if it didn't happen in Yellowknife, it didn't happen. Wow. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, and this was running in the complete opposite direction of where a lot of print media was headed, yeah. where, where, you know, a lot of... Uh, uh, reporters were let go and, and their their work was, their space was filled with wire service and stuff written by third parties. Um, and that's why you have all these newspapers that essentially read the same. Basically. Because right. you've got the same articles just being republished from the same wire service. Totally. And they were also very vigilant, the Yellow Knife still is, about um, about having absolutely zero digital presence. And they, <laughs> their thing is like, you want it, you got to buy it. And because uh, I remember researching the Yellow Knife and thinking like, they're not on Twitter, yeah. they're not on Facebook, there's none that no Instagram, um, so they had a very different kind of model, um, and as a result, but because there was no wire uh, copy, um, reporters were forced to write a lot. Right. So, um, d- so day to day in the newsroom, everybody was very, very, very busy. And listen, the North kind of burns you out anyways because of the climate mm-hmm. um, and the drinking uh, and the and the des- desolation, but um, also the work too, yeah. especially in, as a, as a, as a writer, as a journalist, because you're forced to do a lot of stuff and they have to fill, you know, like 35, 40 pages every, twice a week. That's a, a, an intense amount of stuff in a place where perhaps there isn't as much news happening in Toronto, you can do it. But there, uh, stories like the KFC closing yeah. is a giant thing. And I mean, it sounds funny to us, but it's not really. No. It, it's a serious, it was a serious moment in the community. It was, that's right. It was a dramatic moment, you know, when the KFC closed. That was a story I broke too. I must say I'm very <laughs> proud of myself. Um, yeah. Uh, well, and, and, uh, but but I will say like still like a like a ton of crime. Yeah. Um. There are still uh. There are uh, three levels of government that have to be covered. Mm-hmm. There's a mining industry. Like there is. So that's why actually it's a perfect hothouse for a lot of young journalists. So you'd get kids out of J school. Right. A lot of kids out of J school, who were really thro- thrust like right into the hearth. You know, they had to really learn how to work hard and work fast and relentlessly. Yeah. And. It's great training because you're you're there's that verisimilitude of big city news in a small place. Right. So you get used to writing about crime, you get re- used to writing about politics, you get used to writing about industry. And um, you know Karen Ho, who was there, who uh, was the business reporter, said it was the only place in Canada where she could go and write full time about business. She's a she's a Columbia right now doing a master's in, in business journalism, and I thought that was really interesting. You know that was a that was a place where um, where she could work and do what she loved to do. 
Um, but so so there is a, there is a lot of turnover um, uh, uh, among those young reporters, and that's what that's what made the newsroom kind of interesting as well. Who's coming? Who's going? Because yeah, yeah. somebody would arrive. Like, and there's stories of of reporters that would um, out of J school that would come up and last literally last two days, right. you know. And there's the story as well about the the kid who comes up from Montreal in the summertime, takes ecstasy. They find him in his underwear by the side of the road. Like, they're all like the stories are legion yeah, of yeah. people getting into trouble up there too. <laughs> and that's always great for. Great for a book. So why was it that the closing of the KFC was a big deal? Yeah, the the, the KFC is a big deal. Um, among the communities in the Northwest Territories, their food of choice is uh, is Kentucky Fried Chicken um, for whatever reason. Yeah. It's a thing. It was maybe yeah. the first fast food that was ever up there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and and people would come down from the communities in you know on snowmobiles and or or through uh, by float plane and other uh, other type uh, other um, seasons and um, they would buy like mass quantities of Kentucky Fried Chicken, like buckets and buckets and buckets of the Colonel's chicken, and they would take them back uh, to the communities. And in some cases, they would, um, in some cases, they had built underground freezers where they would freeze the chicken. And then when somebody was getting married, when there was a, you know, any kind of event, a social, they'd, they'd thaw the chicken and they'd, they'd go to town on it. So... Without uh, the chicken, <laughs> of staple, I think yeah. more than a staple was the ritual a little bit. Right. Send Buddy out with a snowmobile and bring back the chicken. It was a kind of rite of passage, I think, in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah. So that was a so that was a huge deal. Tons of letters to the Yellowknife, tons of calls. That whole day, there was kind of like the city was in trauma, almost more so than the houseboat fire, more <laughs> so than the double homicides, uh, ornamental sword murder. Yeah. The KFC was closing. It was a big deal. So tell me about John McFadden. He is a, a reporter that you worked with. We talked earlier about the itinerant nature of the North. He's one of those guys who went there to get away. Hmm. Yeah, John was. Uh, John has been a reporter and a broadcaster in Toronto. He was for many years. Um, he went. He did. He did the rounds. So, CBC, CP twenty four, CTV. Um, I think he worked for Checks for a while. Yeah. Uh, sports broadcasting, a lot of different things. Um, and really, you know, could never really kind of hold a job in one, one media outlet for whatever reason. And then, um, then I believe after he was, uh, let go from, uh, CP24, he, there was no work for him here. And so he applied for a gig in Yellowknife and, uh, he said he was hired after a five minute phone conversation <laughs> with the, the head of broadcasting at one of the one of the radio outlets there. Yeah, yeah. And then um, while he was on the air there, actually, he called out the RCMP on uh, regarding one of their uh, a policy of theirs regarding um, uh, d- uh, offenders of domestic violence. So people would be released back into the community and the police would not uh, announce that they had um, gotten out of prison, that, that these offenders were, were at large. And um, he, so he held them to, uh, he forced them to change their policy basically. And um, he kind of brought a big city mentality to reporting to a smaller place and it ruffled a lot of feathers. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a result, there was a lot of uh, friction and tension between John and um, uh, the territorial government, um, the mining industry, and particularly the RCMP. They didn't like some big city guy. Yeah, these are three entities you don't want well, to... Well, they're employers yeah, too, yeah, yeah. right? So they're able to pretty much do whatever they want to do. And the RCMP, listen, they do a lot of good work out up there, obviously, and it's a really tough job. But because it's so far removed from everywhere, it's a, it's a place where they hide a lot of, a lot of bad officers, right? Mm. A lot of people that... Um, 
have had trouble in the force elsewhere, they kind of they send him up, they kind of right. hide him up. So it's not so it's a bit of a tough it's a, a bit of a tough group. Um, John was arrested for obstruction of justice on Canada Day outside his favorite bar um, uh, for taking pictures of a van that the cops were tearing apart. They said that he broke the plane of the van and got inside to take pictures. He claims that that's not the case, that he stayed on the sidewalk. Um, they threw him in jail. Um, he got out the next day and um, and he was charged. And as a result, it was a seven-month trial that basically pitted the... Um, the newspaper and John against the cops, which is kind of like a, it's like a narrative from a 1930s yeah. noir film. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was happening in real time in the, in the North. And when that happened, did you think, oh, this is going to change the trajectory of the book here? This, totally. Th- this becomes a different book now. Right. I was, in a way, I was really grateful for it because, yeah, it could have just simply been a book about my experiences mm-hmm. in the North. It could have been about journalism. It could have been about writing. It could have been about my travels because I traveled a lot around the Northwest Territories. But, it, yeah, I didn't know there would be a court procedural, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Last quarter of the book, you kind of hooked in there trying to figure out what ha- find out what happens to John. Um, and this great character did emerge for me. I remember John saying to me, geez, uh, it'd be a great, great ending for your book if I went to jail. Yeah, I was yeah. like, John, you don't have to go to jail for me. To, but in a way. <laughs> but you're right, ah, though. That's yeah. right. Following him through and sort of seeing how it all ended up was, I think, was fascinating for me. Hopefully it's fascinating for readers. But it's always nice when a character can emerge out of the mist, right? And as opposed to the central character being simply me. Right. Which I'm always kind of conscious of anyways. And I'm a little bit tired of my voice or me being central to the story. So it was nice to be able to pass that off. We'll talk a little bit more about John McFadden when we come back. He's a complicated guy and you had kind of a complicated relationship with him as well. Uh, We're talking with Dave Bedini. The book is called Midnight Light, A Personal Journey to the North. Uh, We'll talk about John McFadden. I also want to touch on the new Rio Sadics album and the West End Phoenix and where the future of print journalism is. You seem to think that it's pointed towards local, not global. Stay with us. Dave Bedini's new book is called Midnight Light, A Personal Journey to the North. Uh, you know Dave Bedini as the co-founder and songwriter of the Rio Statics. Probably, how many times have you toured the country, do you think? Uh, More uh, times maybe than Maybe a dozen? You, yeah, yeah. Maybe a dozen? So you've probably, wherever you're listening to this interview, you've probably I've, seen Dave play with the Rio Statics. You know the records, uh, CDs, download streams, I don't know, whatever you wh- sure. whatever you call those things now. Uh, you've read one of the 13 books, uh, or perhaps you subscribe to the West End Phoenix. It's a it's a, a neighborhood newspaper that you've started. We're about a year old now, right? Started mm-hmm. last October. Um, you seem to, to think that the, the future of newspapers, and this seems a little counterintuitive until I hear you talk about it, is smaller. Smaller is better. Local is better. I get it. It serves the community and local news is integral to the to the health of any community. But uh, I mean, it is about money though, ultimately, right? So it's hard to create a small newspaper and and keep it going. Yeah, we um, well, we're a nonprofit and uh, my wife always says, she's our, our, our managing editor, she says, uh, as a nonprofit, we're kind of starting where every other newspaper ended. <laughs> um, so you have to be relatively, you know, modest and 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 realistic. I yeah. think about uh, about one's reach. We're um, 
were 100% subscription and patron supported. Um, so the patron is uh, so the paper is kind of nourished by people in the community who have the wherewithal to help, and uh, and also by subscribers who you know believe in in it and like it and stuff. And we're you know we have volunteer home deliverers. We're based out of the Gladstone Hotel. Um, we have an artist residency there. So there's certain actually um, certain boxes we've checked in terms of uh, people helping us along. Yep. But uh, yeah, I mean I always believe like even with the Rios, you know, and to a certain extent the early books where. You know, small can be mighty, mm-hmm. you know, and, and out of small dreams, uh, you know, larger visions are realized. And um, I think you just have to, I've always kind of carried myself that way too. You just start with an idea that matters to you. And if the idea matters to you, you just, you know, if you do it well and it's well executed, you're hope, hoping that other people will pick up on it. And we, you know, we have, you know, 2,000 subscribers here in the West End, but we also mail about uh 400 um, across the country and around the world, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. And starting the newspaper, I realized too, especially with community news be- and because where we live where we are, um, we had all these incredible um, writers and, and mm-hmm. photographers and illustrators right, living on our streets <laughs> who were, you know, you know as well as I do that there was a time in um, the life of newspapers where you would have, you know, um, you would have novelists write, write for the Absolutely. newspaper and you yep. would have poets and there's just not the budget in those mainstream and print um, places to, to, to do that anymore, let alone hire new reporters. But we're, we have the wherewithal to be able to do that. Um, and, you know, 82% of all of our, um, all of our um, revenue goes to paying artists and stuff too. So, um, yeah, it's been uh, – we started with – it was a dream around my uh, harvest table in the backyard uh, September 11th, two, two years ago. I gathered my friends. I said, am I crazy? And they were like, probably, <laughs> but – you never know until you try. So. Yeah, and now it's a year old. Yeah, so we start our second year. Um, our first issue is delivered October sixth, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful newspaper. I think it it looks great. It's really rich. It reads great. Um, and even though we're writing about the West End, we're writing about universal issues. I think in terms of cities, um, and I think that's why people are drawn to it. And you know, westendphoenix.com, If you go there, you can subscribe. Seventy bucks a year. I love what you say about the idea that if you're interested in it, then it will eventually find out. That is how I've written every book, mm-hmm. every radio guest that I book. I always figure if I'm interested in it, there's going to be 10,000 other people that are going to like it and then they'll tell two friends. I think, you know, that's generally the case for most people. Most people feel in their gut that they have, you know, when they're when they're moved by something. But I think in general as a society, we're, we're, we're taught to kind of follow the herd, yeah. you know, and to not express ourselves and to sort of, you know, only express ourselves if, if it kind of fits in with, with, you know, greater, you know, a society at large and where we are. Um, but yeah, I would think, I, I, if anything, in terms of my artistic legacy, I would like people to look at me and sort of know that it's okay you know, on every level to express, you know, how you're feeling in the depth of your soul and what moves you, because we need that. We were talking about John McFadden, someone who I think has walked his own path. uh, For better or worse. For better and for worse. He's one of the characters, the main characters, real life characters of Mm -hmm. Midnight Light, Dave Bedini's book about a personal journey to the North. And it's interesting. Last week I interviewed Lloyd Robertson Mm -hmm. and Lloyd uh, is in his eighties, gets in a car crash, demolishes his car on the highway and someone hands him a microphone and he reported on it. Now he told me that people said, 
Lloyd, you, you have to go to the hospital. And he said, the news comes first. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and, that's great. And that is great, right? And and it made me think of John McFadden a little bit. You know, yeah. this, this is a guy who, mm. you know, a complicated guy. Mm. Old school reporter type, I think, hard drinking, hard living, you know, that the kind of uh, uh, thing you used to see in news or in uh, in movies years ago, the yeah. kind of character. Uh, but tell me about your, I think, complicated relationship with him, being that he takes up a third of the book. He, um, you know, he's a crime reporter um, at heart, covers, writes about a lot of stuff, but mostly about crime. And I, I, I realized during the summer that I got to know him that the reason he was so good about writing about about crime was because he was, you know, you know, uh, two degrees away yeah, he, from he being a criminal himself, yeah. <laughs> right? So it takes one to know one a little bit. And that's also goes back to the kind of the hard-boiled nature of yeah. this kind of character out of time that, you know, because he was kind of revolving or he was in those sort of circles, it was, he was the best person to be able to, to write about the reality of those situations. Um, yeah, complicated with me too, because, um, uh, I realized John's such an engaging storyteller and is so uh, colorful and lively and interesting um, that I, I wondered at what point, uh, at a point, whether in fact I was having the wool pulled over my eyes, but I was right. being charmed by him, whether he was playing me a little bit. Because um, at one point in the book, I become privy to some sensitive information about him during his trial, which, which I shared with him. Um, and he ended up using. Uh, for just for his own benefit, and actually ended up driving a wedge between myself and the person I was given who gave me that information from the Justice Department, um, and I thought that was kind of offside, and it made me wonder whether our whether my relationship with him as as a quote unquote journalist or somebody who was supposed to be writing, you know, from a distance and with a you know with a kind of a clear. Um, measured view of it wasn't, uh, in fact, getting too close. Like to part of the story, becoming part sure. of the story. Exactly. Um, we've only got a few minutes left. I want to talk about the Rio Status sure. and the new album. Uh, it's the first one for 12 years or so, the first album. Yep. Uh, why so long? Well, you know. You, Complicated life. Yeah, yeah, you get to be adults and um, <laughs> that sucks. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can't really kind of get by with, uh, that sort of elan that you had when you were a kid, you're less yeah. rubbery and you're a little bit more unyielding yeah. in terms of people's demands and that sort of thing. But it was good. We took a nice break from each other and, uh, now Recharged. we're, yeah, we're mature enough that we can kind of be together and, um, put it together in a, in a more professional way, I guess, <laughs> even though, I don't know, I don't know if there's the room for professionalism and good rock and roll, but don't worry, we'll, 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 we'll try to be. We won't, we won't try to be too straight in and, all of this. And are you recording right now or is Yeah, we just, we're just waiting to mix our record, actually. Oh, wow. So, yeah, wow. So it's almost, it's all done. We recorded in the summertime at Revolution uh, Studios with Chris Stringer and stuff, and we're thrilled with the results. I can't wait for people to hear it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's exciting, right? I mean, it's, totally. it, it must be interesting to have, I don't know, a record of your life that can go back from, because the first records probably were made when you were 20 or some totally. in and around there somewhere. And, you know, that wasn't yesterday. And so you can you can look back between the books and between uh, the music and sort of have a, a, a through line mm. as to where you were at at various times that goes beyond just scrolling through the, the photos on your iPhone. <laughs> you go, look, that was five years ago. This is different. It's different too, I mean, because you're able to pass on, you know, all of the things you've kind of learned, I guess, yeah. a little bit and the stories you've told. That's one of the great things for me about Midnight Light is I, I was able to go up there and tell 
you know, my my readers and tell the people of Canada stories that nobody would have had a chance to hear because yeah. not everybody can go to Yellowknife. So to me, that's that's part of the fun. The same thing with music, too, is we get a chance to celebrate what we do and what we love together. And again, maybe that will be an example for people as sort of a way to live and way to get along and a way to produce art out of being together, which is something that we can't we can't forget in these times where art is sometimes compromised for for other things. Well, you were friends with Gord Downey and you know, when you say that, I think about that moment, mm-hmm. you know, when we all found out that he was ill and how it really brought, I mean, that last broadcast, man, a third of the country watched it. I mean, it, that that's numbers that 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 you don't get for anything and 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 it really did, you know, galvanize mm. people. And Gord would tell you that uh, as a country, it shouldn't take something like that mm-hmm. to galvanize us. Yeah. You know, we should all be getting together, watching our great bands and supporting our great writers and going to our, you know, our galleries and, and celebrating what we have, not when it's um, threatened, yeah. but rather simply because it, ex- it exists and stuff too. So let's all learn from that. Let's all go out, get out and support Canadian film and support great writers here and listen to all of our great bands. Midnight Light, A Personal Journey to the North is in stores right now. It's been five years since the last one. Will it be five years till the next one or are you I don't know. I may now? have to write a novel now, I think. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Uh, you, know, uh, you strike me as kind of a reticent writer, someone who loves it, but a reticent writer on some levels. A little, it's man, it's tough, man. That's yeah. like that's a lot of time in your own head. Tell me about it. Yeah, you, yeah. I know you get a little sick of it after a while. Yeah, my wife always says that I go to crazy town when I write a book because it just it's all I think about. It's yeah, you have to crawl inside. And listen, when you get inside yourself, there's you often find out stuff that you don't really like about yourself either. <laughs> so you kind of have to deal with that. But listen, the book's out now. It's not my problem anymore. And right. so it's the world's problem. Everybody else just deal with it and we'll be fine. Dave Bedini has been my guest. The book is called Midnight Light, A Personal Journey to the North. Uh, check out the other books on a cold road. I love still on a cold thanks, road. Thanks. Uh, as I was leaving my, my office today, I've got a bookshelf, a giant bookshelf. And I, for some reason happened to, and maybe it's because I knew I was seeing you today, just the, the Bedini name nice. grabbed my eye as I walked out of the audience. Uh, oh, out of thanks the office. buddy. Awesome. Thanks. It's great to have written that stuff for sure. Uh, thanks Dave. Pleasure. My thanks to Andre on the board and my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk again next week.